Hello, hello, test, test. Okay, just test real quick. Test, test. Okay. So we're all good. We're all good. Yeah, we're I'm recording. good to go. All right. Um, so did you, how, did you end up finishing? Yeah, actually I finished it today. I finished Powerpuff Girls while I was at work today. Solid. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, I'm still trying to decide how much like the final parts there add, um, that isn't already like touched upon earlier in the show's run. There's like one... Maybe two episodes that, um, <laughs> oh. one, maybe two episodes that I like have something to say about like that episode specifically. Um, because we were so, we were like halfway through season five anyway, you know? Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, but they kind of sort of give each villain a wrap up in season six, which is interesting. Well, not everyone gets a wrap-up. Mojo Jojo kind of gets a wrap-up. Fuzzy Lumpkins does. Princess does. Yeah, yeah, those are the... And the gangrene gang seduce us, sort of. So they they get their stories kind of wrapped up a little bit. Um, And I have something to say about the Fuzzy Lumpkins one. Yeah, yeah. And, and I figure that that will... Because we already kind of talked about him, but I'm sure there's some new things upon watch um, that we'll definitely get to. I'm thinking about trying my NPR radio voice today. Oh, no, don't do that. <laughs> where I talk and strangely pause for effect. Inflect. This a is. Strangely. Yes, you must speak as if on a lazy roller coaster. <laughs> Your peaks and troughs. NPR, in P, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> yes. Oh, man. That was um, beautiful, Chris. Do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, well, you just said my name. Um,. Oh. My name is Chris, and her name is Paige. I get to say yeah, her my name, name, too. <laughs> Tip for My tat. name is Paige, and this is Animanies, the podcast that apologizes to you for the poor sound quality. And the podcast that promises not to use this strange, inflecting voice. <laughs> and doesn't apologize for it. <laughs> we will speak like normal human beings, damn it. Yeah. That's important. It, it, it is it, important. It truly is important. So we are naturally, as was mentioned earlier, we're finishing up with the Powerpuff Girls, which the Powerpuff Girls officially constitutes... Oh, no, wait, no. I was about to say it's the first show we watched all the way through, but that's not true because we did it with Hey Arnold. Yeah, we watched Hey Arnold all the way through, and I think I was like one episode short of watching Doug all the way through. Spice. Ah, uh, see, I'm not gonna lie. I I did not so, you know, watch as much of Doug. Yes, I guess if there's a winner to be had, that winner is you. Last time when we spoke about the Powerpuff Girls, we talked a lot about the villains. I kind of didn't expect that to be the springboard. You know, we talked about the subsidiary cast and not 
the main cast, a la the trios and their father. But I'm sure we'll talk more about the villains today because it's just unavoidable because they're so good. And so There's no show without the villains, and the villains are really good. Yeah, they uh, to say that they're not the main cast, I guess, is unfair. It's unfair to them. Justice for villains, I suppose. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, but we said we were going to, today we were going to be discussing, first off, the sort of good guy Yes. Yes, we were. I have things to say, but I, if you would like to go first, you may. No, you can go first, Chris. I'm totally fine with that. Um, we covered pretty much every main villain, no side villains. So I think a good place to start with today is the girls, right? Like the Powerpuff Girls and the good cast. Um, so the Powerpuff Girls are, like, seven years old. It's hard to... No, they're, like, five, dude. They're kindergartners. I was in... I was seven when I was in kindergarten. That doesn't sound... Usually you turn six in the kindergarten... In kindergarten. I I was, like, late. Not... I wasn't behind, but I was, like, old for, like... Just, like, a late birthday or something? Yeah, my, my birthday's October... So I oh, yeah. basically had to wait a year to go to kindergarten. At the, I like, see. Yeah. So I was a little bit older. So, okay, they're like six. We can agree on six. That's a nice average. Um, Me in the middle, six. <laughs> which is weird because Bubbles acts like a six-year-old, but the rest of them don't. Even Buttercup's aggressive tendencies are a little bit more old, like older kid, I don't know, style aggressive tendencies. But... These three girls are Sugar Spice and Everything Nice and then Chemical X. It's just sort of the Can thing. Talk about the way that they're animated. Yeah, yeah. So uh, unlike everything else in the show, they're blobs. Yeah, like I was saying last time, everything about them is circles. Like you even notice when they're floating in midair, they always have like one little leg up and the leg that's raised up against them just looks like a circle. Right, it's and, right, with the white stockings and the black shoes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so they're circles. Their eyes are 90% of their heads. They're so huge. Which actually, there was an interesting note about that particular art style. So those eyes are called keen eyes. Okay. There's an artist. Oh, oh, is this like the big eyes thing where like the dude made all the money off of it, but actually it was his wife the whole time? So the the, the uh, woman's name is Margaret Keen, K-E-A-N-E. Her drawings have these really big, otherwise the drawings are fairly normal proportion-wise, but the eyes are always really big. Not in an anime way, though. Like in a very Western-style art, big eyes. And the Powerpuff Girls draw inspiration directly from that. Well, that's neat. I didn't know that. Very cool. Yeah, and the la the person's last name is Keen which makes me think of Miss Keen, 
their teacher. Yeah, for sure. For so, sure. I, I, maybe that's where her name comes from. I don't know. Maybe it's just a coincidence. Uh, Who knows? Craig McCracken, write to us. Tell us. Yeah. T- Craig McCracken, we're putting a call out to you. Tell <laughs> our listeners what they want to hear. Um, but yeah, they're all circles. They're blobs. They're shorter than everybody else. Like the, the other kids, their age all have regular like angles and fingers. <laughs> the Powerpuff girls don't have hands. They just have nubs. nubs, but, but the nubs work like hands. It's fun. They draw so much attention to the way that they're shaped actually in later seasons, like, on a very late episode, Bubbles, like, they're walking, and Buttercup is like, clearly these feet weren't designed for walking, you know, or they play rock, paper, scissors, and they show all three of just their little nubs in the middle of the circle, and yeah, they it, just know. It, that becomes <laughs> one of the meta jokes that ends up being made, because in the episode where everybody switches bodies, Buttercup ends up in the professor's body, and she tries to pick up a phone by just keeping her like her fingers straightened because she's used to just putting her nub on an object and picking it up. So she like tries to swipe the phone and she can't do it. She's like, how does this work? It's so funny. Which clearly like clearly is meant as a joke about the way that their, their hands are drawn. And it's just wonderful. Um, so the basis of the Powerpuff Girls is sugar and spice and everything nice, which without the chemical X is sort of just this like milk toast, traditional feminine child formula, mm-hmm. kind of like without the can of whoop ass, basically they're they would be really boring little girls. Well, there's the whole episode with the run of the mill girls, you know, about that. <laughs> right. Oh my god. Um so that's key. That's key to making the girls an interesting character like group. Otherwise they would be very boring. I also think it's really telling about Professor. Like, why did he even want to he didn't want to create superhero little girls. He wanted to create the perfect little girls. See So the, the Professor is just like a profoundly like lonely man. In my estimation. But that's the problem. Uh, But no, see, during the time travel episode where Mojo Jojo goes back to try and stop the professor from making the Powerpuff Girls and he makes the professor create the Powerpuff Girls, right? So first of all, for all you time travel experts out there, Powerpuff Girls issues a deterministic time travel paradigm, which is... People who think that they can go through time <clears throat> to change time will always end up creating the reality that leads to them going back in time, creating themselves, and it just continues like recursively forever. So there is no getting out of the time stream in Powerpuff Girls, which is the depressing version of time travel. <laughs> Sorry, it's a sci fi show. And the first question that you always ask when a time travel something comes up 
is whether or not they were always fated to go through time and create themselves. Or if time is detached, where you can, like, create alternate realities. Yeah, and, like, it's hard to say in Powerpuff Girls because there's two time, time travel episodes. There's this time travel episode where they go back in time, and it's the deterministic kind. And then there's the other episode where they go forward in time, and we're led to believe that it's, like, not necessarily deterministic. That the future they visited in which him took over everything was predicated on them not being around. And if they are around, that that will not happen. Um, yeah, going going into the past and going into the future. Because, like, going into the past, it's either you go into a separate reality or you go into your own. Like, you go back into your own reality that, like, works as a loop. Like, it'll always be a loop. So... Mm -hmm. I like going into the past and going into the future can work differently because when you go into the past or future, you do like you always create an alternate timeline. Um, sure. If you make it back, if you make it back, because otherwise it doesn't matter and you're stuck in the future and it's your reality regardless. It's but, Futurama rules. Yes. Futurama rules. Um, I know that our audience will care about this topic because you're all fucking nerds. Yeah. Um, God fucking hate you nerds. So. Just kidding. We love you. We love you. I love you from the bottom of my heart. Um, but oh, shoot, <laughs> we got off on a tangent. So meta jokes, sci-fi jokes, the girls. Okay. So you mentioned something about the professor and I think we can talk about the girls like as we just go through things in general, but the professor is a, like a, a distinct person to note to talk about. Yeah. Um, so you already noted like a key factor in that he's a profoundly lonely person. Mm -hmm. You think that's still true despite the fact that we actually do know what his motivation for creating the girls was? Yes, because regardless of whether or not like that was his goal, I think it maybe could have started out of like wanting to create these girls that he met, but as he got older and failed to form other relationships, it also became about him being alone, like alone started off. Not that way, but now it is. And I think you see very early on in the show's run. It's like the first or second episode when he's being a killer dad and taking care of the girls. And then he gets ready to go to bed alone and he, like, his back hunches over, he gets this really sluggish posture, and it he's in his bed, and he looks over to the empty spot, and he gives this heavy sigh, and you can tell that he's just, like, profoundly alone. And that's why he's so easily taken advantage of by Sedusa. So, yeah. I, I think the girls do fill that role in his life more as the show goes on. I'd, or we just don't see him feeling alone anymore, but he still is. Yeah. And I think he's also noticed that, like, trying to also date while the kids are little is not going to work in the way that a lot of single parents of small children do. Because, like, he and Miss Keen see each other for a while, and they just, like, kind of, like, are gross and, like, fuck up their lives because of it. 
And then they break up over a really dumb reason. <laughs> yeah. The key note, I think, is that we're seeing that the professor is like a sh- is like irresponsible when he gets into relationships. Yeah. He like, gets way too focused on the woman and really overcommits really fast. And he fall. He either falls really hard and just lets them do whatever they want, as we saw with Sedusa, or his life becomes too entwined with hers and other aspects of his life. Even his children suffer for it. Yeah. So, so really, he's not okay. He's not a healthy vision of an adult, even if I believe he's a killer father figure. Yeah, he's a great dad, but you can be a great dad and not be like an emotionally healthy, fully actualized person, which yeah. he's not. Because he 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 really is a great father. So I think uh, a big focus because we talk about families a lot, and the only family that we really see here, aside from like snapshots of other people's family, like Princess or Mitch, is that. They have a pretty good family unit. Like the girls are decently well behaved with him. He cares for them. He he shows both like traditionally feminine and masculine traits and tasks around the household. He cleans, he cooks, he shops, he works like he does everything. He's a killer dad. And he really, for the most part, is a good mentor to his children. Yeah, for sure. Go, Professor Utonium. You are a great dad. I I will say that I think there are moments where he becomes frustrated and espouses, like, Dexter's parents, sort of this authoritarian, you will listen to me or I will kill you sort of vibe. And you see see him. Most of the time he's not like that. But when he's frustrated, he is. But and there are moments where you see severity in him. And one of them is with the pets, with pets. Oh, like, my God. Yeah. He becomes that sort of like parent that's like, haha, I love you, but no. Yeah, for sure. Um, ironically, that cat takes over his brain. But um, yeah, good instincts, Professor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> should have kept the cat. But it wasn't just that cat. It was any cat. But he gets yeah. better. He gets better later when Bubbles starts bringing home animals. She brings that home whole a whole episode. Oh my god! She brings home a whale. Um, tries to put it in the basement. It's like a sitcom plot, except dialed to like eleven because superheroes. Yeah, it's actually a really great episode. Bubbles is so sweet. She's so pure. The professor is a little bit kinder in that respect. He's just like, listen. You need to let these animals be free. Yeah. So overall, Professor Utonium as a dad is pretty good. As a scientist, he's pretty irresponsible. Oh, yeah, for sure. For like, sure. He, he definitely is sort of this uber-mensch scientist figure that we see in Dexter. He's like a grown-up Dexter, basically. Um, a little bit more even headed or level headed, but he's willing to do experiments just cause that endanger other people. 
like the episode where he harnesses everybody's bioelectrical energy from dreaming just without their consent. Yeah. Where's the informed, the human subjects board? Like what's going on? And he ends up being integral to defeating a lot of the villains. So his, his ethical scales are probably evened out a little bit. If you're going to make it a zero sum estimate, but we could, you know, he could be better. There's that whole episode where the girls are like, everything great you've ever invented has been by accident. And he has a crisis of identity, but also, and that's actually the run of the mill girls episode. It ends up being because he dreams, but that's actually not fair of the girls because he intentionally invents lots of things to help them out with their crime fighting. Like all the time he comes in in a pinch with an invention. He builds a giant fucking robot that destroys fucking Tokyo town. Okay. <laughs> to- he did just, there there's a place in Townsville which is basically Tokyo but they call it Tokyo Townsville which is just I thought a, they called it Little Tokyo. Little but it's in Townsville and it's as big if not bigger than Townsville. Just because oh, okay. they need that setting for a giant robot monster fight. Sure, sure. And then they, they never talk about it ever again. I'm like, way to use, like, a Japanese setting for window dressing, and then you never show it ever again. Way to go. Yeah, these early Cartoon Network shows were really bad about that. It's like, one day you should show them going to Tokyo Townsville and just hanging out. Maybe yeah, I'm asking like, for too much. I do that. I ask a lot of my cartoons. Well, I mean, I think it's reasonable for us to ask of, like, these early Cartoon Network shows to be like, hey, if you love anime and want to reference it, like, don't be, like, kind of racist when you portray, like, Japanese settings. Yes. You know? I, I do not think it's too much, but... Uh, People have told me I'm wrong, so mm. I. Do you guys think it's too much? You probably do. Yeah, You're probably gonna let us know about it on social media. Text now at five 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 five. Dial one for Chris is wrong. <laughs> um, no, we're not gonna do that. I think those things are dumb. But uh, yes, the professor does. He he creates a vaccine for the amoeba boys cold. Like, he does plenty of things intentionally. Yeah, the professor is great. Lay off the professor. Team professor. As a family unit, they're fairly normal. Um, I think that the show is really true to life when the professor tries to get involved with the girls' lives crime-fighting-wise. Because <laughs> it, it, it always ends poorly. Um, yeah, and- like the whole... Uh- Eppers, the the power professor or whatever. At first, it was really fun to hang out with that with him, and then he started completely embarrassing them, <laughs> yeah, and just and making I, things more difficult. I, I see it as so with the with the Dynamo episode, he gets involved with their lives because he wants to protect them. He like something happens. I can't remember exactly what it is, but it causes him to like compulsively worry about the girl's safety, which is fair. They almost die quite a lot. Yeah. So that's fair. In the Power Prof episode, it's because he wants to spend time with them, which is also a fair 
desire, but he mm-hmm. fails to treat them like autonomous beings. Like he fails to respect their privacy and like them as individuals. Cause he tells embarrassing stories about them. He starts to become like domineering and telling them what to do. And overall he doesn't really have the right to do that, but because he's an adult and they're kids, he has no qualms about doing that. Take note, future parents, just because something is your child doesn't give you the right to completely disrespect every boundary they have in a way that you would never do to an adult. Yeah. yeah. That's just like, I don't even know where, because I know that that's a heavy trend in like Western child rearing since childhood was, became a thing during the industrial Mm -hmm. revolution. Like childhood wasn't considered a phase of life before that. So I know that it's like heavily influenced by like our history of what we think children are. And it's only gotten worse as we seek to protect, like protect children more. Cause what that does is it just like continually infantilizes kids and makes them seem helpless, which there are some things that kids need protected from. That's not what I'm saying, but there's a psychological framework that goes along with that that kind of invades every aspect of life which is mm-hmm. oh you're a you're a dependent like you're a minor and with that comes like the sense of i i have authority or control over you so i i can just treat you however i want and that's because i'm your fucking parent and i hate it but it's a historical trend and those are hard to fight yeah yeah, and that's something we definitely see, like, pretty much all of the par- parental figures in every show we've watched do because of that, you know, sensation of, like, I'm your parent and I get to tell you what to do. Like, I brought you into this world and I can take you out of it, you, you know, kind of thing. Um, so it's not unique to the professor. I still think that professor is, like, on the, you know, like, on the upper end of parental figures that we've seen in shows so far. There are outliers, but yeah, for like 95% of the time, he's solid. And he's contrasted against other fathers, like uh, Mr. Morbucks, Princess's dad. We never even see his freaking face. So just like Miss Bellum, though we do technically see her face for like a frame, um... We don't see his face. Yeah. It's like she's sad. I forget what episode it is. But. Oh, man. You see like one one eye and lips. And that's like it. It could technically be from the new Powerpuff Girls. Which they fucking. She left the show. Like they kicked Miss Bellum off the show in the new Powerpuff Girls. Which is already incentive enough for me never to watch it. The voice actress or the character? The character. What? She she retires. She 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 has she is for as long as she's been working with the professor. She has been saving her vacation days, and so at the like end of her tenure, she has like a thousand 
vacation days. And so she's just like, peace out. I'm going to go sit on a beach and live it up for a thousand days. What the fuck? I was really disappointed. Lauren Faust was also disappointed. So I know that I'm right. <laughs> if McCrack- McCracken, if his, if his wife, I almost said waifu. I don't know why. Oh my um, God. Did you find out whether or not they're still married? No. <laughs> no. I. It's one of those things that I was like, I should find that out. And then I went to go play video games. Oh, my God. I. If they are divorced now, I bet it's because he got rid of Miss Bellum. I'm going to look it up. Okay, you're doing it? All right, I don't have to do it. Um, okay. Well, this provides us a good transition into Miss Bellum, actually. The dopest character on the show. I love Miss Bellum. Miss Bellum fan club. Yeah. Um, She is, if you look on the internet, she's a polarizing figure. Really? Is it just because she's hot and we don't see her face? Because she can be like hot and still a great character. So first of all, it does appear that they're still married. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Uh, Wikipedia says spouse Lauren Faust and there's no divorce date. So there we go. Cool. cool. But yeah. I um, actually do have like one or two comments about Lauren Faust later, but let's talk about Miss Bellum. So Miss Bellum is a polarizing figure precisely because of her overt, not overt, but like implied sexuality. Mm-hmm. Um, this has always been an issue. Like this has always been a lightning point for any like discourse on feminism and like women in power. At first it was like, Oh, well women only appear on screen when they're hot. So it was like an erasure of like normal women, like not normal women, but like all different kinds of women. Um, But then it was like, well, why can't we have, like, sexy figures? Why do we have to arbitrate female sexuality? Like, they can be both sexual and powerful. And these ideas, like, conflict with each other depending on how much you believe, like, women are underrepresented as being hot or not. When in power, especially. So it's like, Mm -hmm. technically you could make it a numbers game, but then you ask the question, like, at what point does that stop mattering? Like at what amount of non-hot, powerful women do we no longer have to worry about that stereotype? And then does the pendulum swing the other way? Like it's it's a clusterfuck. I will go on the record as saying that that, issue is a clusterfuck but i do not have a solution and i also would bring like sort of another thread into it which is the idea that like okay so characters that look like miss bellum are traditionally they're not powerful like women who are hot in that way are not powerful they're bimbos the only thing that's valuable about them is how hot they are and like they have no intelligence or like skills or personality to speak of so there's the other way that you could look at it where you could say showing someone 
who is traditionally like super hot and whose name is literally Sarah Bellum, you know, and is clearly a powerful person that also like that could be construed as like a really good thing. Right. You could argue you can, we could come up with counterpoints forever, but there is one more, which is um, whenever you see women who are smart they always end up being attractive a lot of the times. Mm-hmm. Like nerd women have always been hot as well. So you get this idea that it's like women can only be smart if they're also hot. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. TV. Yeah. There's so just think, counterpoints on counterpoints. Man. Yeah. Have you ever seen the world is not enough? The James Bond movie? No, I've never seen a single. James okay. Bond well, movie there's a, do- there's a, there's a doctor. There's always a bond girl. She's a bond girl. Her name is Dr. Christmas. She's a nuclear physicist, but she's got washboard abs and, like, is very attractive. So, like, I, you, you see this... Which that, no nuclear physicist is. That... <laughs> and see, that's kind of, like, especially stark, because you're like, that's very rare. Um, mm-hmm. Not that attractive, traditionally attractive women can't be nuclear physicists. It's just not a common trend. There are um, no traditionally attractive male nuclear physicists either. Yeah, I guess I feel that as a person who's been to conferences, psych people are... Nobody can ever hear me talk about this professionally, but I'm going to say it anyway, because I don't know. I think that psych conventions have shown me that psych dudes are a little bit more attractive than normal science people. Hmm. Interesting. Maybe it's because it's a soft science, which I don't yeah. believe that. I don't believe that it's a soft science, but some people will say that. So you're wrong. We're not going to have the soft science discussion right now. <laughs> so Cerebellum is arguably the figure of power in Townsville, right? She basically makes She's sure that shadow mayor. things don't fall apart. She makes sure that things don't fall apart when the mayor fucks up. And... Oh, boy, he does. Oh, boy, he does. Constantly. Yeah. Some people are going to be like, well, why couldn't she be the mayor? Like, why does she have to be second in command? Um, I, I think that that is enough of that. I think that she is powerful, a good role model for the girls. She mm-hmm. serves to impart upon them many lessons about womanhood, heroism, responsibility she comes to them when they're down to give them the moxie to stand back up sarah bellum is like low-key the moral heart of the show she's always just so subtle about it and you never see her face that you can easily forget that she's just like always around being like girls like remember this important lesson you know (laughs) but like she's doing that constantly she, she, um, I lost my train of thought. I was about to say she ultimately prevents a lot of, tra- like, she, it, by proxy, helps the girls defeat a lot of enemies. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And usually when the girl, the girl, she comes in up a lot when the girls are fighting, like, female enemies. Like, um... 
There's a Sedusa episode where sort of Sedusa switches places. Where we also... She kicks ass. We see her kick ass. Yeah, she kicks fucking ass. Literally. And by the way, you know immediately in that episode that something's wrong because you see Miss Bellum using her sexuality in this really overt way that the real Miss Bellum never, ever does. Which that... Uh, that episode for me stuck out really starkly because it was also the episode where we found out that Cerebellum lives on Yodelinda Valley 69. Is it that episode? I thought it was the it Dream is. Power Body Switching episode that we found out her address. I think, I think it does both. Okay. It shows the mailbox in both episodes. <laughs> um, But yeah, she... The way that she um, she like falls apart and uses her sexuality really overtly, you just know that that's not who she is, and that kind of serves as a very stark counterpoint to like to the belief that she's a vapid, intelligent person or unintelligent person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's very, very important. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so then, you know, she kicks ass and she helps them defeat um, Sedusa. And then she plays a huge role in one other episode where they fight a female villain, which I have weird feelings about this episode. Um, it's the one, um, it's Femme Fatale. Right. So right? For, our, for our listeners, there's one episode with this villain named Femme Fatale, and she's even got, like, a Venus symbol as a gun. Um, it is it is kind of what you imagine the alt-right thinks feminists are. Yeah, it's... So she is a thief, but she's only stealing the Susan B. Anthony coins because she doesn't want anything with a man on it. And in order to benefit herself specifically she sort of convinces the girls that like men are out to get them or whatever and the girls like start being these man haters and like they're not actually taking anything into context you know and uh miss bellum is like this is just not right you know and so she gathers all the other adult women in the Powerpuff Girls' lives to show, like, um, you've been taking these things out of context and the things that the men were doing were actually reasonable. And look at all these women that Femme Fatale has hurt. Like, Femme Fatale doesn't really care about women. She only cares about herself. And, like, equal rights are great, but, like, special rights are not, you know? And then the girls go, like, beat up Femme Fatale. And it's sort of like... You know, like libertarian or like centrist liberal friend who is like, look, I'm all for equal rights, but that's these, you know, man haters. That's not what they want. Or who says like, well, I'm all for all for it, but it just shouldn't be called feminism. We need a better word. It should be called, you know, I'm an egalitarian, not a feminist. That was the tone of that episode. Um. Yeah. Okay. So some of this is like, in context at the time that it was made discourse about these issues was well underway within academic circles and activist circles, but less so amongst the general population. And 
I don't think I mean, that- to be fair, like, the 70s had happened. People had experienced an explosion of, like, their wives and mothers and sisters becoming, like, feminists. And we already had the discourse about, like, bra burners and man haters and, like, lesbians and hairy armpits at the time that this was made. Like, we already had that. Yeah, I, yeah. Huh. I guess I. it's hard for me to think about the 70s. I forget about <laughs> You know, I don't know. I just haven't studied the 70s very much, to be honest, aside from pop culture references. <laughs> I know way more about the like 60s and lower, but. Uh, oh, I see. Yeah. No, but um, I don't know. OK, so. the It's nice to see that the girls have a lot of positive female role models in their life. Yes, that is great. That's good. Um. And I think, <clears throat> I think that the girl's response to what Femme Fatale says is reasonable for children. Yeah, I yeah. think that the clumsy, like the clumsy hammer that they were given makes sense. Because they're not, they probably have never thought about issues of sex and gender before. That's probably their first, like, conflict for them. And so they go about it really heavy-handedly, and it's less about, it's, like, more just about male, like, individual guys than it is about maleness generally or systemic problems. So, yeah, mm-hmm. of course they're going to just, like, be this clumsy caricature that it, that it ends up getting set straight. And I think the... The female role model's message was specifically, you need to look at the context. Hmm. I Because yeah. Miss Bellum says there is injustice in this world. They, they overtly say that there are real problems. But the professor not doing all of the chores, a boy throwing a ball at a little girl who was playing the game, like these little non-injustices, those are not what's really going on. Yeah, but, like, I'll remind you, like, the show has writers. And the show chose... The writers chose to even make this a plot to begin with. They chose to have a villain who was a character of a fem- character of a feminist. They chose to have her spew, um, you know, this caricature of feminist ideology. They chose to have the girls interpret it in this really heavy-handed way that misses the point. And then they chose, in the speech about the context that the, is given to the girls, to never mention the idea that, like, yeah, they just say there is real injustice, but they don't ever say, like, there is real injustice for women, you know? So I would say it within the context of the episode as a discrete entity, I totally see your point. But, like, I'm thinking, like, why did the writers even choose to write this episode? But, I mean, it also imparts, like, an important lesson that just because a person is a woman does not mean that their actions, like, constitute, like, fighting for women's rights either. 
like I mean, yes, okay. A, a, I mean, exploitation I see that of women by women, and the fact that there are a lot of women who support patriarchal structures, like that's an important lesson that's hard to like. I don't know that if that was like a big in college, that was like a kind of like an oh wow moment because. I don't know when you when I first learned about feminism, I was like, "Wow, so this is like a general woman problem." But then you're like, "No, there are also women who are who are causing problems as well." Mm-hmm. So that's I don't know. That's a hard thing to communicate in ten minutes. But yeah, I felt yeah. that the fact that they call it's like this person isn't really fighting for your rights; they're just exploiting you, and that is something we cannot have. Yeah, Hillary Clinton. I mean, hey, yeah. Like, (laughs) just because one woman is getting rich does not mean it excuses her taking, like, things from other women. Mm -hmm. It's like the opposite of what we want. (laughs) Yes, Hillary Clinton. (laughs) We have to say her name every every time like that. Yeah, even if we're just like... Yeah, I mean, so I guess in the 2016 uh, election when Hillary Clinton was running for president. <laughs> oh, um, I- I'm willing to say that that episode is complicated. All right. It is, I'll give you complicated. It is, it is got, it, it is, it, it is kind of a mess, but it, I guess it depends on. I, it depends on your focus, as so many yeah, things do. I suppose. Um, that episode also has, like, basically no mayor in it. It's, like, Miss Bellum 100%, basically. Um, which is fine, honestly, because the mayor does nothing ever. Which, now that we're talking about the mayor, I, I just want to say that he's an inept career bureaucrat. And he is one like pineapple away from being SpongeBob. Oh my God. Yeah. And like we, at some point earlier in the show, the mayor has a wife and we see the mayor's wife, like they're in bed next to each other. But by the end of the show, the mayor's wife doesn't exist. They never talked about the mayor's wife having left him or, um, or died or anything. The mayor gets kind of flanderized, honestly. Like, he starts out as, like, stupid and, like, inept, but he gets aggressively more that way as time goes on. Yes. I think the aggressive incompetence, definitely. Like, when he evicts all the monsters from Monster Island to build a factory that will only make figurines of him that he will buy... That's yeah, that insane. Also, I was like, fuck gentrification. The monsters are right. Like, you know what? Like, I'm not even mad that this episode seems to indicate that there are some kinds of people who can't live together because the monsters should have their home back. Like, fuck these capitalists. That episode is kind of about racism. Yeah, but also kind of about gentrification. Um, which those two go hand in hand. They do. They do. So it's only fair. Um, Spoiler alert, the monsters really don't fit in Townsville, but it's not their fault. 
I yeah. Townsville is not made to accommodate monsters in any way, and that is not the monsters' fault. Because the mayor of that town forces them to leave their home to live in a home that is not their home. Uh, yeah. And, and people, even when the humans and the monsters like try their best to like get along and live together, they just can't get the past past the fact that like the society of Townsville just like cannot accommodate the monsters. There's too much historical violence standing in the way. Like, yeah. Mo- okay. To be fair, those monsters do attack Townsville and destroy it on a regular basis. Yeah. Just for like, social points it seems so the uh, yeah no so literally the you you learn that the monsters only come to townsville because if they go to townsville and fight the powerpuff girls and survive they become heroes so it is literally just a reputation boost for them so the monsters are not innocent in this entire thing in fact i the townspeople's ire is completely justified but it's not targeted at the true source of this conflict, which is the mayor. Yes. And it's kind of hopeless message because they never vote the mayor out of office, except for the one time. He never learns anything. He's just so dumb. Like fuzzy gets elected one time, but then everybody's dumb and doesn't elect a new person to be mayor. The fact that yeah. Sarah Bellum doesn't run to be mayor is a travesty. Yeah, like, why? Why doesn't she run? I don't know. She I don't know. Maybe she's skeletons or something. Or she just doesn't want to be in the public spotlight. And that's totally fair. Yeah, that's fine. Um, um, but the mayor, the mayor is almost as large a source of conflict as the villains. Which goes to show you that massive incompetence can produce maliciousness that is on par with intended, like, conflict. Yeah, there are a lot of episodes that sort of end with, like, the girls or Miss Bellum or some combination of people just yelling at the mayor to fucking get his shit together and stop acting like a baby. Like, one episode, literally, the professor has the mayor in his lab and the mayor is acting like a literal baby... And then he ends up turning into a giant version of the mayor and, like, destroying the town through his babyish behavior. Because, the because. Me- because, and I cannot emphasize this point enough, Professor Utonium will not make him toast. Yeah. Or, like, he's trying to fix... Professor Utonium agrees to fix the toaster, but he's just not doing it fast enough for the mayor. So the mayor, we're, uh, I initially put him on the good guy side. I'm going to put him on the bad guy side. Well, okay, so if this were D&D, bad if this were D&D, he would be chaotic neutral. Yes, yes, that is a good alignment for the mayor, chaotic neutral. But his the results of his actions often end up being evil, like on the bad side of the spectrum. Mm. Now, oh God, I'm but I'm gonna see, get but caught also, up in D and D classifying the characters. He's so easily exploited by the villains, but it's his own fault. So he ends up being a tool for evil. 
which yeah. because he has the ability not to do that is kind of his fault. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to touch on Miss Keen real quick and then do the girls and then just like stray thoughts? Yeah. So the the other woman figure in the girls' lives is Miss Keen, which you don't actually see that much. Um, I remember her a lot, but she doesn't show up as much as I thought. Well, whenever they're at school and then sometimes she'll like come to their birthday party or whatever. But she's kind of background. She's kind of background in a lot of things. Yeah, I mean, like, I don't really have a lot to say about her in terms of describing her. Like, she's mostly just like she's a kindergarten teacher. Um, you do get the impression from the a way she behaves in a very late episode that maybe she does not actually like kids. She, okay, so remember the episode where the, it's like, Blossom gets ice breath and there's a heat wave. She gets so frustrated that she's just like, okay, kids, go outside and fry. And the kids yeah, are like, on Ms. the Keen, blacktop playground. Miss Keen, it's so hot. And she's like, shut up, <laughs> is basically <laughs> her attitude. Um, no, you see her kind of be this sort of dismissive person or just be like, just play nice. Mm-hmm. Sort of like, teacher that you you do get the sense that she might not like kids yeah but mostly she's just a standard teacher except for the fact that she sometimes teaches kindergartners like advanced light physics that those moments are awesome yeah those are pretty great she basically describes the process by which an object traveling at the speed of light will time travel (laughs) from from the object's perspective yeah. Yeah. It's um it's just to set up a time traveling episode because the Powerpuff Girls fly so fast they break the light barrier. We talked about this already. Yeah. Which okay. is impossible. But yeah, I don't really have anything else to say about Miss Keen. That's pretty much it. I wish I had more. She Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, she's, like, she's not a bad character. She's fine. She seems to care about the girls, you know? Um, Which we should probably talk about the individual personalities and conflicts of our main characters, right? Yes, let's do that. Because <laughs> those, you know, are very important. They form the basis of a lot of the episodes of the show, their fears, their hangups. Their power. Serious issues arise. Um, Okay. So we get Bubbles. Oh. Bubbles is so cute. And she's also a badass. She's the joy and the laughter. She has the joy and the laughter. Um, (laughs) Scottish band blew my mind. So Bubbles is the most childlike, right? She believes in magic. She falls for a lot of very easy tricks. She's very easily swayed by peer pressure and teasing. She prefers cute things, playing, asking monsters to politely leave rather than fight them. But she also shows like a distinct desire to be taken seriously despite her demeanor 
Yes. Which I think, and, I think uh, is really a major important. character episode for Bubbles is when um when she turns up the sim training simulator to eleven because her sisters and her dad don't take her seriously because of her because of her personality and so they um they won't they don't think she can handle as much as the other girls can. She wants to prove like that she can she can absolutely handle as much as they can. And she does prove that she can handle as much as they can, but she learns the lesson that she doesn't have to become like aggressive or rough around the edges to be able to handle that. That's just in her anyway. Yeah, it's sort of like an extreme version of the infantilization we talked about. Because even the other girls treat her like a baby. And so yeah, we get this. Yeah, at the same moment. <laughs> we get this. Um, yeah, so we get this conflict we see where, like, they're stri- like she strives for respect and autonomy, which she deserves. Regardless, she should have always had it, but she has to fight for it. And it ends up happy, and she does end up getting the respect of her sisters. Um, yeah. And you end up seeing that, like, Actually, Bubbles, despite being the joy and the laughter, it Bubbles is actually just as clever as Blossom. Like, they make fun of her like she's stupid, but she's actually, she's just naive. She's just as clever as Blossom. She's just as tough as Buttercup is. She just chooses to be someone, you know, like a, like a Pollyanna, like an optimist and a, and a sweetheart and to, to look at the world like it contains magic, you know? Um, but she also like, she is just as, just as good as them in her own right. Um, bubbles really pulls her own weight most of the time. And I'm trying to think of like unique character conflicts for her because a lot of the conflicts are shared amongst the girls, like with their fears, like they all have fears that they have to fight. Um, she gets manipulated by villains because of her like desire to believe there's magic in the world. That's a lot of her conflict is that she, she's easily manipulated because of that. Which um, people, I feel like people's first impulse is to treat those people like it's their own fault for the mm-hmm. misfortune that befalls them. Maybe I, people shouldn't try to manipulate them. And I, yeah. I feel like that's always the counterpoint is that like, do you really think that it, are you really telling me that it's bubbles fault and not him? The manifestation of pure evil is not to blame for yeah. like her being manipulated. It's bonkers. I do yeah. think she should exercise a little bit more discretion, but I don't think that, it's necessarily a negative aspect of her personality that she's... Yeah, I mean, she's six, and she'll probably learn as she gets older, you know? And she also, um, she has a special power, and her special power, it's actually just mentioned offhand in the episode where Blossom gets her special power. Um, the professor's like, like Bubbles being able to speak Spanish. Bubbles is just like, see. But it later seems that, like, her special power is just languages. Hey, hey, Paige. She speaks squirrel. Yeah, Paige, you kind of broke up there, just as a reminder as we're going forward. But, yeah, she can speak to animals. Yeah. It's pr- it's really neat, actually. Um, because that leads to the whole... Her, like, 
loving personality and ability to speak to animals leads to um, Bullet Squirrel, who is pretty dope and is now a woodland superhero who, like, protects the creatures of, like, Townsville nature. And it's really dope that that exists. Yeah, it's a super freaking cute squirrel. It's got the Powerpuff eyes after they dose it with Chemical X. Yeah, to keep it, you know, from dying. This Um, show advocates animal experimentation. PETA needs to get on this right now. (laughs) Watch, PETA's going to be, like, phoning in to us. (laughs) Yeah, but, um, Bubbles, her other, like, personal character conflicts have to do with just her wanting to bring animals home or, like, you know, her attachment to, like, stuffed animals, which is really just her being a kind person and, like, having to learn, like, what the limitations of that kindness are and, like, when your kindness is actually hurting. Um, And she's, like, afraid of the dark. But she gets over that at some point in the show. It is worth noting that she, just because she's naive, it does not mean that she is unbound from some of the ethical problems that you see with the Powerpuff Girls as a group. Oh, yeah. Like, she's sweet, but she still also uses a lot of violence to solve conflicts. For Uh, sure. I mean, that's their whole thing, is they use violence. Um, But none are so ready to use violence... As Buttercup. Yeah, I think if Bubbles is our baby child, like, they were technically born at the same time, Bubbles is the baby. She's the youngest child, if we're going to do birth order stuff. I think that Buttercup, Buttercup is the middle sibling. Is definitely the middle sibling. For um, sure. Always trying to find her place. She's pretty aggressive. She really fights against the family structure. And has a lot of conflict with her family. She wants to be loved, but she also doesn't want to be loved. Like, there's a lot of stuff having to do with anger. Like, her main conflict has to do with her anger or her glee with violence. Yeah, sometimes Buttercup is just fucking mean, and it causes problems. You know, Buttercup was just mean to that Elmer kid and he turned into a glue monster. Um, Buttercup was just mean to Bubbles and it led to the situation in which Bubbles got manipulated by him. You know, Bubbles, like, uh, Buttercup can just, she can just be mean sometimes. She's always yelling. Uh, She's always yelling. Usually at Bubbles. And, and so she, naturally, she likes vi- fighting for fighting's sake, and that's a dangerous quality for a hero to have. Yes. Because you can very easily, you know, go to the dark side, right? She And she does create problems. with. Like, I mean, she goes and hangs out with the gangrene gang for, like, a whole episode. Yeah, she's willing yeah. to associate with questionable characters. Um She's willing to fight at the risk of her comrades, her environment, and her own safety. Mm-hmm. Uh, she is she, she like hates bathing, which is a really interesting. She she typifies a lot of really masculine traits. 
She does, yeah. As well. Um, you could honestly slap her, slap a like a boy facade on her, and it would be normal. Yeah, for sure. She's a very she's the tomboy of the crew. You know, if Bubbles is the girly girl, Buttercup is the tomboy. Um, and so a, mo- the majority, of, like Buttercup, also we see is like as much as she clearly like struggles with herself and that's what leads her to lash out in so much anger all the time. You know, there's a whole episode with her security blanket where before she goes to fight, she has to like hug her blanket and like reassure herself that she's a good fighter. Right. So she lashes out in a lot of anger, but we do see that ultimately like she does love her sisters. She does love the professor. She does care about the town and about, like what's right to the extent that the Powerpuff Girls have a good grip on what's right, <laughs> you know. Um, and you know she's she's a member of the team. Like she she usually wants to do it her own way. So this creates kind. Of, there's an episode entirely about Blossom and Buttercup fighting each other on how to attack a monster. So you see, yeah. you see this, but yeah, you see a vulnerability in her. She hates to show it, but she's a person. She's got fears, loves, desires, just like every other person. So ultimately she ends up being a fully fleshed out character and not simply fists yeah. on a body. Yeah. I'm like the second to last episode ever. Um, you know, they're fighting this monster in the beginning and it turns out the solution is a combination of Bubbles' special power of language and Blossom's special power of ice breath. And then Buttercup gets really frustrated because, like, she doesn't have a special power. Um, and so they spend the whole episode trying to figure out what her special power is. Everything she can do, they can both do. And then it turns out in the end her special power is curling her tongue um, and she's happy with it, even though it's not really a power, because she's like, hey, it's something that sets me apart. It's something that makes me unique from the two of you, you know. Um, and then there's like a meta joke from the narrator about how, like, we've been waiting all this time to learn what her special power is, and it's curling her tongue. It was lol central. It was. It was good. It was good. So, you know, that was like a nice moment for her, too. And to really see, like, a lot of what she is is to just what she wants is to just feel like her own person. You know, she's not like the leader, you know, who's always in charge and she's not the super duper cutesy one. And she wants to be distinct from them. Right. She's not the baby. She's not the baby who gets the attention and she's not the eldest child who is like self-sufficient and respected. She's Mm -hmm. in the middle and she fights for recognition. And research shows that middle children do have to fight against like they get the least attention and resources out of either the baby or the first child. That's why you should only have two children. Um, it is like the amount of investment per child goes down per child had. Like those are generally, unless you have a bunch of servants and money, um, that is just a limitation. Usually people end up fine. It just tends to produce certain types of behavior consistently amongst family groups. Like birth order is a real thing. And that's why we see it so consistently in culture. And like people can, 
pick up on these stereotypes like almost immediately because a lot of people have lived it. Um, which naturally brings us to the eldest child, right? Um, Blossom. Blossom. Commander and the leader. She is she is a prototypical type A el- eldest child. Respect for authority. You should always follow the rules. Um, you know, intellectualizing everything. Intelligent, uh, intellectualizing things. Well respected and like recognized within institutions. Like she's recognized as the leader. Um, and she she typifies the conflicts that Type A people have. Like. She has trouble fighting against authority or like she doesn't like rebels, which leads to a lot of like you always have to have a plan. Things always have to be organized. Chaos is bad. And you see her fears typify this, too. Like this this aspect of her is so deeply ingrained that her fears are fears of failure and not just failing to fight like demons or monsters but failing in in institutional marks of success like grades yeah can i just say that i like relate to blossom so hard and simultaneously find her insufferable i'm a first child so yeah me too we both technically are more similar to Blossom than either of the other two. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I'm not, like, I've become less type A over the years. And um, I've also, I've done something that I think a lot of type A people do, which is they realize that the types of authority they've been taught about are bullshit. So they just choose a different authority to substitute for it usually, and like fight against the original authority. Usually that authority is some kind of principle or ideology. Mm-hmm. Like principles of equality socialism. replace. Yeah. Socialism. <laughs> socialism replaces, you know, whatever you grew up with. I mean, it's usually you follow the authority that's most proximal to you. So like when you're in school it's school when you're around your parents, it's your parents, mm-hmm. um, that sort of thing. And I mean, Blossom, Blossom is super intelligent and she definitely deserves praise because she's very clever. She's very clever. And ultimately it is really a good idea to have a plan when you're fighting monsters. Um, she can sometimes do what people do where they focus on the plan or the ritual too much. Mm-hmm. And they fail to improvise or be flexible. Yeah. Yeah. And like, so you see a lot of Blossom's conflicts are like, she's too bossy and she ends up stepping on people's toes. She's so rigid into thinking like she's right that she can't hear good ideas from other people. She's so afraid of failing and so used to not failing that she fails one time and all of her confidence is shaken and she loses her sense of identity. You know, your normal, like, gifted child problems. That's actually, it's really funny. In my graduate behavior and learning course, we talked about why it's important for people to actually experience failure before they get too far in life. Mm -hmm. Because they do, like, psychologically people do 
really poorly if they've never failed before. Because you will fail. It is inevitable mm -hmm. that there will be a failure in your life. And... Yeah, let me tell you, if you manage to get to the age of 22 without any, like, real significant failures, like, you know, failure of, like, doing much more poorly in a class than you expected to do, but still ultimately passing it is like the most major failure in your life until you're 22 years old. And then you apply to four grad schools and don't get into for to a single grad school. You are not going to deal with that. Well, yeah, I, um, I kind of didn't really fail. Um, until looking for grad schools. So, uh, I relate, I relate yeah. strongly. Um, and uh, you, in the fighting the fears episode where him puts them in a nightmare scape, like bubbles and buttercups fears are super visceral, like clowns and toys torturing you or spiders. Things that yeah. make sense for really anybody, but Blossom is afraid of failing a test. And so out of all the fears, hers is like the most... Relatable? White middle class. <laughs> Two. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I mean, I relate to Blossom's fears, to be fair, but I never. it was never that bad. Like... Oh, it was for me. The first time I ever got a grade below like a 90 on just a test, not in a class, just a, a quiz that didn't even really matter that much in a class that at that time didn't even really go on my report card. Sobbing. I got like an 85, just hysterical tears, just like gutted, ruined. I was like nine. I could not deal with it. Yeah, I guess elementary stool, stool, school was good because I did fail like a couple of tests. Like I got a D or an F. It was always in spelling because <laughs> spelling was its own grade. Um, but no, I and I and I wasn't in the best like best math class. I was like on the standard math track. Like mm -hmm. in seventh grade, I took seventh grade math instead of pre-algebra. Like, yeah, same, same exact experience. So, like, I think I was used to enough, like, but I'd usually get straight A's on a report card or, like, A's and B's. So, like, I feel like I was used, I wasn't super fragile, but I also wasn't truly failing. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly how I think of it. Yeah, like, not getting into any grad schools was the first, like, real like actual real failure of my life it is a numbers game how many places yeah. did you apply to four oh oh honey oh baby they were all really good schools too oh. i had poor expectations oh Paige. <laughs> i feel bad for you because that's like a recipe for disappointment yeah you need to we apply. can talk about this later. Yeah. If, for any of you who are thinking about graduate school, just know you should apply to at least 12 places. What? That's so, that would be so expensive. It cost me like $350 I, just to apply to four. I know. I know. It's not great, but it's a numbers game. It just is. 
Yeah. But um, anyway, okay, we're we're pushing up against it here time-wise. So I just want to cover like a couple of loose thoughts and then I'm ready to wrap up. What do you think? Yeah, that's fine. I think as a group, the Powerpuff Girls accent each other's strengths and weaknesses. And you're a well-balanced team. They are a well-balanced team for the for their age and it is why they're so successful and it's also why other heroes, like other hero teams that they try and join are all fucktards because they treat <laughs> them like girls and the girls kick their asses. So For sure. Yeah, um, there's going to be like so much stuff in Powerpuff Girls, especially about like gender dynamics that we don't even have time to get into because we've just talked so much about the characters because the characters are so interesting. But um, my sort of like last thought about a specific episode that I wanted to get out. I, I just, I thought about it because we talked last time about fuzzy lumpkins and how tired we are of the country bumpkin stereotype and how it just kind of like hates on poor people. And that gets like repeated in his wrap up episode where the girls and the professor go camping for vacation and fuzzy shows up there with his three nephews to also be camping and the girls are just constantly furious at the Lumpkins for everything they're doing. And the professor is like telling them to be calm and they're there to relax and that they can't go beat up the Lumpkins. But the Lumpkins are never doing anything wrong. They're literally never doing anything wrong. All they're doing is enjoying themselves in a way that does not conform to the Powerpuff Girls white bourgeois expectations. Right. Like right. you're polite, you're quiet, you're respectful. Yeah. You enjoy the kinds of pastimes that I think you should enjoy. So I don't find, and you eat the kind of food that I eat. So I find it so offensive that you enjoy throwing cans at a rock, uh, rocks at a can that I want to beat you. Or I find it so offensive that these non-human creatures are enjoying eating flies that have gotten fried on the light that I'm going to go beat them up. <laughs> like what on earth? Yeah. It's a pretty bad, it's a pretty bad episode. Yeah. Craig the crack. And I'm holding you to account for your horrible portrayals of Appalachian Hill folk. Uh, we should really hold the entire animation establishment to account no, because this true. is an issue in every show we've watched. That's true. In every single show, every there's some kind of gross stereotype. Um, except for Rugrats. Except for Rugrats. Yes, there was never one in that show. Uh, that's because they live in California. And as <laughs> we know, everybody from California is the... <clears throat> Excuse me. <laughs> um, one thing I wanted to say is that a boy... I think as a boy, the show is incredibly important to me. Um... I think it was really important that my exposure to superhero, the superhero genre involved the Powerpuff Girls, especially their interactions with more typical male superheroes. Mm -hmm. um, I think it was really important that they also shared a universe with Dexter for me <laughs> because it, I don't know, I liked that as a kid. But um, seeing them fight and triumph, fight for fairness, amongst like groups of superheroes was very important for me. I learned a lot from characters like Miss Bellum 
And I don't know how exactly my viewing of Cartoon Network would have been different without them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all in all, I think it's a really great show and it's definitely worth your time. Yeah, I would rewatch it, honestly. We haven't yeah. touched the new series, probably for the best, but mm-hmm. go watch it. I don't think you'll be disappointed. Surprisingly, it's really funny. Uh, it was a harder show to have on in the background because a lot was going on. So For sure. You can't just like do other stuff and watch it. You have to be focused. Because you do miss quite a bit. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of the jokes, especially the good meta ones, are kind of rapid fire or they're not even in words. They're visual. So if you're not watching, you will miss a lot. And ultimately, I think... I would be happy to have kids watch the show if I were there to say a couple things about the violence of the show. Oh, yeah. I think, yeah. I would I think, have to say I agree with you on that. I think I would have an eight-year-old watch the show, but I wouldn't have younger kids watch it because they internalize violence a little bit too readily. So the ethics of the Powerpuff Girls probably warrant some discussion or consideration. Um Simple corrections by a parental figure will do. I think the show overall communicates enough good stuff that you should just be there to kind of catch the things that fall through the cracks. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Quality show. You can definitely show it to your kids. You can definitely watch it yourself. Um, It's all on Hulu as of right now. Um, Yeah, go for it. Go watch it. Um, And certainly, Chris, we'll be back not next week, but the week after. Yes. Yes, and we're doing Courage, the Cowardly Dog. Oh, man, I was going to tease. I didn't realize we were revealing. I was going to be like, it's going to be the first show we cover that focuses on an anthropomorphic animal. Uh, Well, it's either that, I am Weasel, or Cow and Chicken, and we don't like Weasel or Cow and Chicken. Mm -mm, I don't. Spoiler (laughs) alert. So, okay, sorry, but I'm too excited. So I let you know, we're doing Courage, the Cowardly Dog, because I will always say it like that. You'll have that to look forward to. Yeah, but otherwise, um, if you have anything that you want to say to us, you can hit us up on Twitter at Animates or on Facebook, Animates Podcast. If you have a suggestion or a fan theory or, you know, a, a long letter in anger, um, that you just can't fit into a Twitter or Facebook post, you can email us. It's animateez at gmail.com. Um, if you're listening to this on uh, iTunes, please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find the podcast. Um, and with that, thank you so much for listening. I'm Paige. And I'm Chris. And this has been Animateez. <laughs>